Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for listening today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today by Oliver Berkman. Oliver wrote the long-running and somewhat cheekily titled This Column Will Change Your Life article for The Guardian for many years, and his most recent book is the New York Times bestseller, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. I absolutely loved the book, which challenges many of our conventional notions about what it means to be productive, and is a real invitation to live a more fulfilling and enjoyable life by actually embracing its finite nature rather than running away from it, which is certainly a tendency that we can have. And I've been looking forward to this one for a while. I just truly adored the book. So Oliver, thanks for joining me today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks very much. You know, I've just been really looking forward to this one. Uh, And I'm really curious about your personal journey with this material. You wrote the, as I said, the article for The Guardian for a while, which included a fair amount of productivity content. And then 4,000 Weeks in its own way is kind of an anti-productivity book that (laughs) focuses on, yeah, kind of like finding more fulfillment and getting away from some of the things that we think about as conventionally productive. That's a pretty big movement. Uh, What led you to moving toward this topic? I mean, it's interesting. Oh, it's interesting to me, anyway, thinking about my career, <laughs> but <laughs> maybe not to other people. You can certainly there's certainly a tension there, but I also think that what really happened, and it and it is a kind of pattern that I've noticed in my life and in and in other people's, mm-hmm. is that if you have the opportunity, as I did then, to sort of test out huge numbers of productivity and life organization systems, far more than someone with like a real job who might be able to test out a few, but has other things to do. You get to a very interesting place, right? Because you sort of, you get to the point where you begin to wonder whether the problem is not that you haven't found the ideal technique yet, but whether there are in fact deeper questions you ought to be asking yourself. It's a little bit parallel, I think, to kind of the idea of hitting rock bottom in personal transformation. I don't want to make it sound like it was that traumatic. It wasn't, but it's got that same shape. It's like you have to really feel that you've exhausted the the possibilities of one way of thinking and of living to really start to take seriously the the other. So this is kind of this book is a report on where I got once I'd sort of realized that A, there was no silver bullet out there that was going to make me feel wonderfully in charge and in command of all my time in the perfect way. And B, when I'd started to ask like what that yearning might be about. (laughs) One of the best summaries of your book that I've ever found was actually something that you wrote. And you wrote in the last article that you ever wrote for The Guardian as part of this column, which came out about a year before the book itself was published. And I would just like to read that now as a summary for anyone who hasn't read the book yet. There will always be too much to do, and this realization is liberating. Today more than ever, there's just no reason to assume any fit between the demands on your time, all the things you would like to do, or feel you ought to do, and the amount of time available. The upside is that you needn't berate yourself for failing to do it all, since doing it all is structurally impossible. The only viable solution is to make a shift— from a life spent trying not to neglect anything to one spent proactively and consciously choosing what to neglect in favor of what matters most. And I think that the title of the first chapter of the book, if I'm remembering correctly, is The Limit Embracing Life or something in a a similar vein to that. One of the big insights that you begin with, one of the big premises, is that we keep trying to find more efficient ways to do things when in reality, we might experience more joy by shifting to doing fewer things more purposely. 
Is that a fair summary? Yes, I think it is. I think one other way of sort of getting at it that sometimes makes it click for some people is it's not like you were ever going to manage to get your arms around infinity when it comes to emails or bucket lists or ambitions for your career or anything. It's just that there's a really important, and I would say liberating and actually productive, ultimately, shift to be made from from the notion that you know you might get there sometime in the future to the idea that that's never coming. But sort of looking for a, an escape hatch from the human condition is the wrong approach and is a very tormenting way to live. But actually accepting that things are as they are when it comes to our time is really the beginning of, of using it more meaningfully. You know, I think a lot about the book, the reason that it worked for me is because it is equal parts revelatory and completely obvious if you just look at the truth of your own experience, you know, in in this sort of funny way, right? As like most really great things are. When uh, the Buddha was talking about Buddhist practice, one of the things that he said about it was that you should be able to look directly at your own experience and derive Mm -hmm. benefit from the practice. It's not theoretical. It's actually lived inside of your life. And one of the things you talk about in this way is the kind of paradox of efficiency, how we think that if we just get better at doing things more quickly, we will create more time in our lives. But often, if anything, the exact opposite of that is the case. Right. And again, this I'll, I'll say a bit more about that if you like, but it's, it's a really good example of this mismatch that you mentioned where it's not that I'm telling you anything you don't know in terms of the immediate phenomenology of what life is like, right? We all yeah. know that uh, all these attempts to try to process more stuff just leads to the feeling of having more stuff to process. But we also are these kind of, we're very split because we also sort of are pursuing this idea and this intellectual belief and this future fantasy that it's not going to be like that one day. So one of the very nicest things people occasionally say about the book is that it feels like I was inside their head. It's not that I have special power to be inside their head. It's just that like, this is what it feels like for us as humans. If you sort of get rid of the overlay of, of the ways we try to avoid it. Right. So very straightforwardly, it goes by all sorts of names. Parkinson's law is one aspect of it. The idea that the the work expands to fill the time available for its completion. There are concepts in economics where the same thing happens. If all you do to some system, such as yourself and your own productivity, is make it more efficient, make it capable of processing more inputs, then all else being equal, all that happens is that like more inputs rush in to fill and clog up the system. So to put that in concrete terms, you know, if you get really good at answering email quickly, you get a lot more email because you reply to more people, they reply to you and it goes on forever. Or you get a reputation for being responsive on email. So so people are more likely to email you. If you're really if you work in some workplace where there's a certain kind of project that comes up very regularly and you're much better and faster at doing it than anyone else, then obviously you're going to find you get assigned those those things more than than anyone else. So as the saying goes, that the reward for good time management is is more work. Mm. And I think what's going on there is that we are sort of pursuing this notion subconsciously of a kind of perfect efficiency, which I would say, just to get totally philosophical about it, is also like the desire to cheat death. And we never reach it because, in fact, the supply of incoming things, things to do, ambitions to have, experiences you want, is effectively infinite. So getting faster and faster at getting through that is not going to get you to the end of it. Yeah. But it torments us, right? It leads us on into the like someday I'm going to figure this out. 
And that actually makes it harder and harder and harder to do what you need to do, which is right here and now to make some tough choices and accept that, yeah, if you're going to spend an hour dealing with this demand that you feel, you are going to spend that hour not dealing with all the other ones. Yeah. And one of the things that I remember from the book that just stuck with me is the notion of clearing the decks, how we clear the decks and clear the decks, but the decks are never cleared. And you can spend your whole life clearing the decks, you know, trying to create the space for the things that you actually care about or actually want to do. And you, you just, you just never, never get there because they constantly fall into that bucket of important, but not urgent. Whereas you have all this other material that's urgent, but not important that just constantly fills your life. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I speak from bitter personal experience when I say you got to stop clearing the decks. And, you know, I'm not saying I don't fall into the trap myself now and again still, but but it's this notion that if you really diligently get other stuff out of the way, then large acres of time are going to open up in the future for you to focus on on what you care about. And to put it in more psychological terms, I don't know what you think about this, but I feel like it is the urge to try to deal with feelings of anxiety by doing all the things that the anxiety kind of wants us to do, totally. only to discover that it that that appetite is never fulfilled, anxiety is never satisfied, when actually the real skill you have to learn is to have some tolerance for the existence of that anxiety while you go ahead and do the thing that matters the most, instead of trying to sort of eradicate the anxiety by giving it what it wants. And I think that is a, I mean, with a lot of these points, I was sort of spending many months rediscovering essential truths of Buddhism in an amateurish form. And I think that, you know, the idea that appetites like that, wanting to get it all done, they ask to be fulfilled, but they're in fact never satisfied. And the act of constantly fulfilling them just stokes them, feels to me like a a pretty uh, old truth. And maybe a maybe a noble one in some sense. Yeah. Right. It's it's just the the wheel of craving that it's right. so easy to get get running away on, you know, where the the brain, as uh, as my dad sometimes has described it, is kind of an auto wanting machine. We're constantly mm. looking for the next thing to want. And even yeah. when we're relatively satisfied in the moment, it's if you take a step back from it, you can almost look at the the operation of your own mind and see it looking for something to desire yes, even as we right, we sit right. on the couch and we're doing okay right. just at that moment we're not hungry we're not thirsty we're fine and yet there is this kind of hamster wheel in the back of the mind that just keeps on churning i notice in my 6 year old son sometimes mm. a sort of behavior that is adorable but might get really annoying if it was more <laughs> frequent but i do notice this very funny moment occasionally where it's in, it's incredibly clear to me that he has decided to complain or express dissatisfaction or whine prior to having decided what to express dissatisfaction about, <laughs> right? It's like, it's like reality needs to be railed against. And in a moment, I'll figure out what the problem is that I'm, that I'm railing against. And I've, you know, he's old enough now that I can sort of joke with him about that. But I don't, I'm not sure we're any different as as adults in that. As in a 35-year-old, I <laughs> totally feel the urge to rail against the nature of reality on a semi-regular basis. So, right. so I definitely I definitely feel your son there. A moment ago, you mentioned the kind of philosophical underpinning of the book, and you were talking about this desire to cheat death. And the name of the book is 4,000 Weeks, which is very, very approximately the average human lifespan. 
And that does really inform a lot of the conclusions that you draw about the book, where in order to kind of get off of this, this craving hamster wheel or the desire to push important but not urgent things constantly into the future, we need to kind of live really into the reality that we're all going to die, our time is finite, and that mm-hmm. grappling with that reality is a big task of a human life. And it's not just sort of some theoretical thing, it's very much lived in our experience moment to moment. Right. And I would only add that the living forward into the future and the postponing things is a form of avoidance of that truth, mm, right? That's, mm-hmm. I, th- I, I argue in the book that ultimately that's why we engage in it. There's a lovely quote that I use in the book from the economist, John Maynard Keynes, talking about how people who are always living for the future don't really love their cat, but only their cat's kittens, nor even really the kittens, but the kittens' kittens, and so on forever. And he's very clear, and I think he's right, that that is because projecting your interests endlessly into the future in that way, for those of us who don't believe in at least certain forms of the doctrine of eternal life, the afterlife, it, it feels a bit like not having to die, right? To think like you're always on a pursuit somewhere. Well, if you're always in pursuit somewhere, you never have to quite say, well, no, this is it. And no pressure. And actually, I think no pressure is an important point, not just a joke. But like, if we're ever going to use our lives meaningfully, at some point, that's going to be on in a, in a now, in a, in a present moment. It's not going to be able to be in the future. And yeah, all of this comes from, it's not really a book about dying and death. And I don't think I'm particularly reconciled to dying or death in myself or anyone close to me. But it is about this fundamental consequence of, of the fact that we die, which is that the sort of the constant postponement of meaning into the future is comforting, but ultimately kind of absurd. Yeah, one of the things that we talk about pretty regularly on the podcast that you're probably familiar with is the notion of secondary gains in psychology. And these are the kind of hidden benefits that a person can derive emotionally from their behavior of different kinds. Mm -hmm. And I feel like a lot of what you're talking about here are the kind of secondary gains for these productivity behaviors are attached to this postponement or deferment of Mm -hmm. like a reconciling with the nature of mortality to a certain extent. And all of the all of the uncomfortable things that we just kind of don't have to interact with if we're in a more of a grappling day-to-day with this moment of getting things done. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I have a slightly different language for it, but I think you're you're expressing the same the same thought, right? We don't do these things that defeat our goals and make us miserable in life because we are crazy. We do them either because they bring us something or perhaps because they once made sense in early childhood and and have stopped making sense but they but they bring us something most often i think probably anxi- relief from anxiety and the easiest way to begin to have some freedom from them is to see the role that they're serving in your life and not to beat yourself up for that fact but to see that it makes sense it makes sense in a certain way but it's just not not the thing that you're going to want to do once once you can see what you're doing Yeah, totally. And one of the sections in the book that was very alive for me was the section on procrastination. And there were actually kind of two sections on procrastination. There was kind of good forms of procrastination and more problematic forms of procrastination. And there was this whole part in the book that explored how our desire for idealization basically Mm -hmm. prevents us from embracing the reality of our constrained and short and imperfect. And yet, 
very beautiful and alive life and actually like living into it because we're, we can be trapped in the version in our head, which is always going to be a bit better than what we're able to put onto paper. And that sort of framing of procrastination, I thought was just like a very wonderful encapsulation of why people do it and why people can be motivated to constantly defer around these very real dreams that they have. Like not just the little day-to-day, I'm gonna clear the decks on my email and then I'll be able to get to the stuff that matters. No, there's like this real desire in the mind for something more than that. And yet this impulse comes in that for some reason kind of cuts us off from that. Yeah, and I think like this is important, right? We're talking about how we're finite and how we can't do things either in the volume that we can't do the number of things that we want and and what you're talking about here we can't do things to the level of merit that we can conceive but obviously a really important part of that is is that we're finite but we're sort of capable in some sense of conceiving of infinity in our minds so if we were god we could conceive of infinity and do it and if we were like a chicken we would not we would not be troubled by this because we couldn't do very much, but we also wouldn't have any concept that we could do more. It's that, uh, to the best of my understanding of what's going on in a, in a chicken. As far temper. as we're aware, dogs don't have existential crises. Yeah. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> so, so it's that ability to sort of project an unlimited version of something, a perfect version of something, an ideal version. And then the real pain, I think, of, of a psychological kind that is involved in um, bringing it imperfectly into the world anyway is a i think it's i think it really keeps a lot of people trapped i think it certainly has kept me trapped at various points in my in my life because there is a kind of a defeat that you have to accept in order to do the really interesting cool professionally helpful meaningful whatever it is those things that you have to first of all accept the loss of the of the perfect version what's helped you with that if you don't mind me asking, I mean, I'm sure that it's still a very alive process, but. Well, I mean, there's two levels to that, I suppose. And the one that really, I think, means the most is it is precisely this perspective shift. It's the understanding that, you know, this is maybe the annoying side of the response, but that is what it is. It's like the, it's the, it's, it's understanding that that's what's going on, that the mismatch between what I do and what I can dream of doing is in some sense baked in. Now, obviously I can write a chapter well or badly by various different metrics, but I definitely can't write it perfectly in line with my fantasy. And then I get to see, oh, that's hugely liberating, right? Because it's this shift that I always find myself writing about and thinking about this shift from like, this problem is very, very hard to this problem is impossible. And that's actually very liberating because when you go from mm. maybe I could write this chapter completely perfectly to I definitely can't do that. That ship has sailed. So what can we do? There's a there's a real moment of um of sort of a burden being lifted. The other half of the answer just quickly is in terms of specific tactics and specific methods, I find that this is not necessarily that original a thought, but that real commitment to incrementalism, to doing short periods of work on things and then making myself stop at the end of those periods, which mm. I, I think is quite important. A real commitment to sort of thinking in terms of, what one thing that helps me a lot is thinking in terms of physical outcomes, which is easy if you're a sort of craftsperson who works with their hands. But if you're a 
laptopy person like so many of us these days, you know, to be able to say like my goal for this morning's work is a draft of this section printed out. Like it's there, it's in my hands, it has come into the world. These kinds of tactics, I think sort of, they, they do something in my mind anyway, that gets me out of that world of, have I reached the perfect godlike fantasy of the perfect chunk of text? Well, no, obviously I haven't, but I've made something for real. Yeah. And there's something in this that I've definitely felt in my own life and I'm doing what I can to uh, kind of live into feeling it more more fully, more authentically, making it a bigger part of my life, where when you start bumping your head into these more existential fears or dreads or questions, there's often this feeling of instability, insecurity, grief, loss, fear, like all of these uncomfortable emotions that can accompany it. And I've, I've felt all of those. Mm-hmm. But there is something where if you're able to kind of get through those emotions, like get past those emotions, you can start finding aspects that are really beautiful and are, are really truly fulfilling. And one of the things that I remember you talking about in the book a bit is this shift from the feeling of loss associated with choice, like I only got to choose one item on the menu, to more of a feeling of commitment and enjoyment of the one item that you actually do get to choose on the great menu of life. There's something about that if I like actually drop into the feeling of it and like feel it in my body, yeah. that it just has this yeah. very different tenor associated with it. And it can have like a wistfulness almost, or there might be like a sad aspect to it. But there is something about it that does make the choice itself so much more fulfilling. Yeah, I think that's that's really well put. I don't have a lot to add. I think the word the word poignancy is the one that um yeah that that works for me and i'm not sure i would know how to define it in a dictionary sense but just off the top of my head but it has that notion of the sort of the weight of loss involved in choice making adding something more vivid and alive to the to the choices that we do make and the menu idea is just i always think this is a very powerful thought right it's like confronted with an actual menu in a restaurant, very few of us, some people I've known have sort of terrible order envy and things like that, but confronted with that, most of us are not tormented by the thought that we're only going to get to pick one to three items from a, from a large menu. But if what I'm saying is right, then in a sense, all lists are menus, right? All mental lists of things we could do in the world, all to-do lists, like they are ultimately all things where you're going to have to pick a few things and where getting to pick a few things is actually in some sense the really the really amazing part rather than focusing entirely on the fact that you didn't get through the whole list i'm just curious about this oliver as i was reading the book and as i've listened to you do a couple of interviews and conversations with other people i'm not sure if i've heard you talk about this and if you don't want to then you're more than welcome not to try me have you ever had like a full-blown existential crisis or what you would describe as that? It's an interesting question. I mean, yes, I don't quite know what, but I think people have different, attached different meanings. Sure, to yeah. Term. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely, I've had, I mean, two things spring to mind and maybe one of them will, will sort of answer that question. I definitely went through a phase when I was at college, university, where I was sort of at such a pitch of anxiety about my university work and my thought that I would 
fail my degree miserably and all these things that were absolute nonsense in hindsight, that I think that was the beginning of a kind of stepping outside of my conditioned perspective, because this thing sort of reaches such a pitch that you're, that you're sort of pushed into thinking about it differently. And then I would say I have been through maybe in certain ways, I'm still going through a kind of a more midlifey thing now that I'm in my forties, which I feel like it hasn't had quite the same kind of spike in terms of Mm, mm -hmm. emotional peaks and troughs, but definitely a sort of like, okay, all the things that had just about worked for me up to now have sort of stopped working and it doesn't work to keep on doing all the things that I had been doing, whether in relationship, whether in work. So I don't know, all of this sort of lacks the drama of like, oh yeah. And then I went to the, then I went on a trip to the desert and like, sat alone on the mountain top right and i mean i've done a few things like that but you sort of (laughs) in those things it's more like you're trying to have some kind of existential insight i think these things happen for me in right in the midst of of ordinary life so i don't know i i think it counts and i think that this book is definitely a sort of i couldn't have written it like 15 years before i wrote it something like that yeah the reason that i ask is because it's as we're talking about this, it's, I think it might be easy to hear what we're saying and interpret as sort of like, oh, well, just, you know, shift into a mindset where uh, embracing the shortness of life is a source of purpose rather than right, right, it being right. something that tosses you into, you know, full-on existential collapse. But it's sort of one thing to say that and another thing to to really live from that and to uh, grapple with that in the, the depths of experience. And I mean, one of the things that you do in the book that I really love about it is just in the the natural course of writing it, you dropped in so many names of people who have grappled with these kinds of questions right, throughout right, history right. and their insights around it. Because because these are really like the big questions of life in a lot of ways. And you you funnel it through the lens of fulfillment, I would really say, like more than productivity, quote unquote, because mm-hmm. productivity is a tool that gets us yep. somewhere, that gets us to fulfillment. And that's really like yep. the target that you're shooting at. And in the pursuit of that, you bring in a lot of other people's thoughts and and good information around it. But these are like very felt questions, you know? Yeah. And I think something I want to say about that is like, I think that, well, firstly, I've taken a lot of solace in books written from people who sort of come out the other end of certain processes of existential questioning. And it's not that you can't, it's not that you can be spared it. It's that I think that a book written by someone who's just, you know, I don't know, a few years through life ahead of you or a few has certain experiences that you don't have or something like that. It can be a sort of a, some sort of, I don't know, guide rail or something through, through those things. And I'm thinking especially of the work of um, the Jungian psychotherapist, James Hollis, whose books I sort of discovered maybe not 20 years ago now, but maybe 15 years and um, really started me on a, on a process of, of going through some sort of big questioning but with this sense that like oh this guy's done it and yeah yeah he's not some sort of completely improbable perfect guru he's not like bsing me at all but he's clearly sort of like older and wiser and and like you can get there and then yeah i think also it's just the idea that so much of the benefit of thinking about these ideas comes from the understanding that we are all in the same boat and mm, mm-hmm. that if St. Augustine and Kierkegaard can't and haven't ever fully reconciled themselves with these things, maybe you don't have to either. There's a lot of personal change, I think, that, and certainly sort of freedom that can come from understanding just how non-unique, at least at some abstract level, all these struggles are. What's been helpful for me is moving away or doing what I can 
to move away from the notion that there's like a right way to do this, like yeah. a, a right way to grapple with these questions, a right way yeah. to I don't know, live this one. Uh, what's the what's the line? This one wild and precious life. Wild and precious the, life. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mary Oliver poem, if I'm remembering correctly, and and instead just get more comfortable with the idea that if it feels good to me and if it works for me and if it helps me wrangle with these questions, then maybe that's kind of good enough. And as somebody who has a real expertise orientation and like I like to know the right way to do things as opposed to just the way I happen to be doing them, uh, that was really hard. <laughs> like, right, that was really right, tough. Yeah. I was like, what's the right answer to this question, man? And yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, don't, I don't have one, but I have increasingly found ones that kind of work for me. Right. I think it's such a great point because, yeah, I mean, in some ways, very often you can see in sort of the worst bits of self-help culture that those kinds of schemes and promises to get to this place are, in fact, yeah. a total diversion. What they are is just a, another form of avoidance, the idea that by following one system, you'll definitely get all the way. There is some point at which you're on your own, but it's this strange paradoxical situation of all of us being alone, working on this together somehow, that is mm -hmm. that is so powerful yeah. to me. It's like, there isn't a right answer, but we're all in that boat. And there's something, there's a lot of camaraderie and solidarity there, even if there isn't one answer. Yeah. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeingWell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BeingWell. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OSO1 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. If you're like me, you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long-term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake-up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information, because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. 
We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Just again, trying to like move toward your experience a little bit here because... I'm curious. I think it makes it kind of alive. You talk about fulfillment as being filled full of things. That's often our interpretation of it in modern culture, that we derive fulfillment by just having a lot of stuff on the plate at any given moment that we're kind of constantly churning through. Mm-hmm. But as you've as you've increasingly cleared the decks, I'm clearing the decks here. What have you found like more space for, actually? It's a really good question. And the challenge that I've faced, it sort of sounds like I'm bragging, but I think it's true to life. So I got to say it is that like this book did a lot better than I was expecting it to. Yeah. I mean, it did phenomenally well. I've been super pleased with that experience and hear from a lot of people about it. But one of the effects of this, of course, is that like just when I thought <laughs> I'd got to a place where I knew how to handle a certain volume of email and a certain quantity of work and opportunities and paths that I could take, it sort of went up a level and, you know, yeah. You're suffering from success over here, Oliver. Right, right, right. Exactly. It's not. It's not like I'm sure it's not like being famous in a you know a real sense. But for author in author world, it's enough that like I have to sort of first of all get overwhelmed all over again, and all my worst ten- worst tendencies in trying to clear that overwhelm come back, and then sort of try to hopefully come out with a you know the next level up of proficiency at doing this. I I hope this has for me been an experience of removing certain kinds of potential distraction. So I have sort of slowed in the sense that I've made time. I mean, it still feels like there isn't enough time for everything, right? Because that's kind of like the problem. In some sense, enough would be to spend all day on the work that interests me, all day meditating and reading interesting books and journaling, and all day with my family. Well, you know, the maths does not, or the math does not work there. Yeah. So it is a process of zeroing in on a few things that I care about the most, a few people and a few kinds of work. But it's also a case of just reconciling to the fact that it, some part of me, I don't think is ever going to think like, oh, you got the balance right. Are there ways that you do organize your, your work life, your productivity life, living in a, uh, you know, not to do the whole thing here, but a capitalist society, one that constantly demands more production from us. As you said, you you have a successful book, you have obligations, you have things that, you know, you, I would imagine, want to do at the at least at the level of providing for a broader family system. And how are you able to do those things while also embracing the the finite nature of life or this kind of anti productivity stance in a way? I mean, I have a lot of a lot of autonomy over how an individual day unfolds, at least, you know, between the start and the end of the elementary school day. <laughs> and 
much more than many people I realize. And so one of the things, one something that I do that is really a central part of that for me is making sure that almost every day there's a sort of three to four hour period at the beginning of my work time that is sort of on the stuff that is clearly at the center of what I want to be doing here. So it's working on the book I'm trying to write at the moment. It's working on the essays that I write for my email newsletter. I don't claim this is some sort of genius breakthrough of productivity systems, but it's just that ordering of like, if I have two hours for the smaller stuff later on in the day, two hours is what it'll get. If I Mm -hmm. start with that in the morning, then the whole day is what that will get. So just that question of starting off right. And then secondly, I would say kind of slowly learning that it doesn't help in almost any circumstance to push past that sort of three or four hours a day of deep focus and thought. It it really does not, like over the long run, that is a much less productive way for me to be than bringing myself to stop after the sort of deep work, after those first few hours. At the same time, you know, if there are people listening, watching who who are sort of really into time boxing where they we sort of put a very specific you assign a, a job to every period of time on your calendar that's something i have moved away from because actually i really value the feeling of freedom and not having to you know i don't like the feeling that if i haven't started work by 8:30 or 7:30 or whatever you know that i automatically like failed that seems like i did a lot of stuff like that back in the day where i would have all these systems and then I would fail to uh, follow them perfectly. And then as a result, like I'd be failing through no reason other than that it didn't mesh with my geeky little schedule that I'd, that I'd drawn up, mm-hmm. which is not a, you know, a sort of unnecessary uh, addition of stress. So I'm trying, I try to sort of, I'm a bit more intuitive about what I do from one moment to the next, but it does end up looking like three or four hours of deep work first and then other stuff with a, with a fairly external end point. So that's, that's part of it for me. I think that it might be easy for somebody who's listening right now to point out the obvious, which is that we both have fairly unusual work lives. Uh, You know, a lot of people are working in contexts where they have a lot less control over their time. Somebody else is setting the schedule. Somebody else is creating the, the nine to five at the very least. For a lot of people, it's a lot more than nine to five. Most people who live in Western societies live their lives that way and are kind of on call from essentially 8 o'clock-ish in the morning to roughly 8 o'clock-ish at night. And a lot of the tasks that are associated with that process are are pretty practical survival tasks, you know? Whether you're going to work and putting in the time that you need to put in, or you're picking up the groceries, or you're getting the kids from school, or whatever it is. These are kind of things that you move from, from one to the other. And I'm wondering for, for somebody who's living that life, what do you think you've you found in the process of doing those kinds of work that you think could be helpful to that person, just in terms of the framework for whatever it is that they're doing, just as much as the actual things themselves? Yeah, no, it's a really, really good question, a totally good point. And I think that the principles and the perspective shift that I'm trying to unpack in this book, I really do think are essentially universal. Yeah, totally. On the level of techniques and methods, like these are going to be totally different based on people's different situations not just the degree of autonomy that they have over their time, but also the substance of what they're doing, the degree to which it's collaborative or solitary, and all the rest of it. 
I think the really important starting point really to sort of work from the deep principles to whatever techniques and approaches are going to work in your context is just to see that like we're all finite impossible levels of demands are still impossible the fact that you may feel that you have to do more than you can do just to keep a roof over your head as, a, as, a, as an extreme case it doesn't change the fact that you can't actually do the impossible and i think almost all of us there might be some really extreme sort of limit cases but almost all of us have some degree of choice in terms of the trade-offs we make and the trade-off that you might make would be for example to stay in a job that you don't find fulfilling because that actually is because of the ways in which the society we've built sucks that might actually be the least worst option for you in order to serve a value that you care about a lot which is to you know feed your kids and make as good a family as you can. And this is kind of an existentialist point. And it's one of those things that's kind of easy for me to say, but I still think it's true, <laughs> which is that like, if an individual part of your work is not fulfilling in and of itself, but you can get clear on why it is the thing that you continue to choose to do because of things that yeah. you do care about, there is a sense in which that gives it its meaning. Now that can very easily be used as an excuse to say like, so we don't need to build a better society where people have more fulfilling work. And, you know, with the rise of artificial intelligence, I'm not wholly convinced we're en route to a society where more and more people can have fulfilling work. But, but that sort of understanding of ordering the values and seeing like, well, okay, I'm making this choice for a reason. And of course, many people have a sort of middling degree of room for maneuver and might do that exercise and think, oh, actually, I do want to leave the job I'm in, right? I mean, yeah, that's, absolutely. A, that's a legitimate choice to reach too, because it turns out that there isn't that rationale. But yeah, the extreme cases that can involve doing work that in and of itself is, is terrible. You're doing it for some reason that somewhere in your soul you care about, even if it's not for the activity itself. I'm glad that you said values, because I do think that it is in in its own in its own way, a, a really a book about finding your values and identifying what matters to you, and right. and being thoughtful. And and in some ways, I don't know if you exactly use this word in the book or not. I can't quite remember, but it's somewhat ruthless, really, about kind of like stripping away the things that are uh, middling priorities. I, I think is the the phrase that I'm remembering. The allure of middling priorities. Right. Yeah. There are so many things that sort of strike us as things that would be pretty good uses of our time. And we have to be wary of them because there isn't enough time to be spending lots of it on, on the pretty good, the pretty good uses. That's a sort of based on a misunderstanding of a misapprehension of how much time that there is. I think the other thing that, that, that just makes me want to say, it comes up now and again that people seem slightly annoyed that I haven't like given a list of the things that you should be spending your time on. And my first response is like, you know, I'm no expert, but also yeah. I'm certainly no expert on another person. And I think what's important to do here, and if my book is contributing to anything, it's what it's doing is sort of like, it's clearing away a fog. It's like getting rid of some delusions that sometimes trip us up to leave a scenario, I hope, where it's a little clearer to you what you know you want to be doing. So it's kind of a negative job, right? It's like getting rid of some noise in the situation, some sort of impossible attempts to get on top of everything or to be uh, perfectly optimized and, and, and efficient. And then what's left 
is it's a bit clearer to you what you want to be doing with your time in the situation in which you find yourself. Not for me to say it's like, you know, it's these five things that we should spend our lives on. Yeah, I I do wonder about that though, Oliver, because we have done episodes in the past that are focused on identifying, we talk about them in terms of like wants and needs, these deeper Mm -hmm. needs that we have inside of ourselves. How do we go about meeting them in healthy ways as opposed to the many unhealthy options that are out there for us? And it's really striking to me whenever we do content like that, how often we get comments or emails, things like that, that run something to the effect of, well, I would love to be able to meet my needs, but I can't even figure out what they are. I don't have the kind of interioception that supports me in, in asking myself those questions. Maybe it was a situation where I wasn't allowed to ask myself those questions for much of my life. And now I'm kind of entering adulthood and suddenly I'm I'm expected to just know what all of my wants and needs are. Like what? Right, right. I wasn't I wasn't given autonomy for the first 18 plus years of my life. Like, what are we doing here? And so I'm just I'm I'm asking this question in a kind of messy way, but I'm really just wondering what supported you and like identifying those values or if you've gone through any deliberate processes around them. And what do you think supports people more broadly and in, in really finding out what matters to them? I have so many like different Sure. Like, yeah, so, it's a big question. Sort of, like yeah. strands, and they don't necessarily all go together. So the first thing that the first thing that comes we'll, up, we'll we'll experience it out uh, together here. Oliver, let's stream yeah. of consciousness. That's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the first thing that comes to mind is to sort of reiterate what I think I just said, which is that for us to consider the possibility that the reason or one reason we may not feel in touch with our values is not so much because we haven't gone digging deeply enough for them, but because certain kinds of intellectual notion about what we should be doing get in the way and that actually I think some of the some of the avenues of thought that I focus on in in the book can help clear that away and then it's like well actually maybe you did know on some level you just couldn't see it because of this interference I think there's an element of that I also think it's honest of me to say that I think I've I have say all sorts of very positive and some mildly critical things about the way that I was parented and raised but the 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 sense that i could sort of choose the basic way to live and the basic careers that were open to me that choose among them for myself was something that was always inculcated in me for a long time so you know that's no help if that isn't your situation Mm -hmm. but it's worth acknowledging that like there is a there is some accident of birth stuff going on in here another whole area of this that i found really useful is my engagement with jungian work at Jungian psychotherapy. And one sort of easy to convey bit of this that can sort of be said in a minute or two is this question that I mentioned in the book from James Hollis, who I've mentioned in this conversation, which is to ask about one's life or about choices one is facing in one's life, whether the choice enlarges me or diminishes me. And I've had a number of occasions found this, this specific inquiry really helpful because it's so much more powerful than to me than asking does this make me happy? Will this make me happy? It's like, we're terrible at predicting what's going to make us happy. You know that the research is is pretty solid. Happiness may not even be the thing we're aiming for anyway, in some sense. But that sense of like, I feel like I've, I've matured in significant ways on a couple of occasions in my life when I felt able to distinguish between certain kinds of negative experience or problems in work, in a relationship that were there's the kind that are a signal that you should move away from that thing, leave that relationship, leave that work. And then the kind that are actually part and parcel of really getting into the muck of 
doing life properly and well and getting better at being a human. And and that question, does this enlarge me or diminish me, has helped me distinguish between those two kinds of difficulty in life. So I can give examples, but that's the basic, that's the basic idea that, that to sort of try to understand whether a difficulty one is experiencing points in one direction or in another. I'm going to quote you to you here, I think, Oliver, because toward the end of your book, I think that the the chapter I'm referring to is titled The Human Disease, which is a phenomenal name for a chapter. You actually have these five different questions that are focused on like, how can somebody get to a place where, or how can somebody start to explore these ideas in a way that might be helpful for them? And I thought the five questions were great. I would love to just read them here. And then if you have anything else you would like to add or anything that it just kind of sparks in you, I think that would be totally great. Sure. So the first question, where in your life or your work are you currently pursuing comfort when what's called for is a little discomfort? The second question, are you holding yourself to and judging yourself by standards of productivity or performance that are impossible to meet? In what ways have you yet to accept the fact that you are who you are, not the person you think you ought to be? And then fourth, in which areas of life are you still holding back until you feel like you know what you're doing? Finally, how would you spend your days differently if you didn't care so much about seeing your actions reach fruition? And I think that's a really interesting one. Yeah, I think it probably is in some ways the most interesting of those five questions. I was, you know, Let's not uh, shy away from how books get written. I was at this point in this book, knew, did not clearly understand how the book should end. I had written a whole chunk of the ending that my brilliant editor, FSG, Eric Chinsky, had pointed out very gently, completely undermined various things that I was trying to say and was not the place that the book wanted to go. So I had to sort of keep trying to figure out what was actually in me. And, it, and it's very authentic what I ended up writing, but it wasn't my first attempt. And I got to this point and I realized that actually, yeah, although books like this often tend to end with a whole bunch of things to do, and in the appendix, I do include a few sort of tips and tricks. What it needed here was actually was questions because that is what brings it back to you specifically, not me sort of lecturing you on, on what matters. And that thing about not minding so much about seeing actions reach fruition. There's this this image that I mentioned there and that I'd come across previously a number of places, this idea that if you put yourself in the position of one of the stonemasons who worked on a cathedral like mm. York Minster in the my hometown, which is just an hour or so away from here, you look at the sort of time scale on which those kinds of structures were built, the vast majority of the people who worked on them, as I understand it, would not have been there at the beginning and would not have lived to see the completion. But buoyed up in their cases, I think often by a by a religious mm, devotion mm-hmm. to what they were doing, like the meaning was to put a few stones in there while you were during your period of being here for the for the sort of eternal human drama. And I think that there is something really powerful about that just because, you know, in some sense, you're not going to see any of your actions reach fruition. The work we create, the parenting we do, the ways our influence go out goes out into the world in large ways or small, right? You're not there 
for the end of it. In some sense, it never ends. And in more immediate sense, like you're going to die before a lot of the ramifications are felt. And there's just something very lovely. I can't even quite put it into words here today, I find, but um, Mm. in the notion of like, okay, let go of the sort of weight of that notion of like, am I going to get to the point where I get to say like, I did it right. I got parenting right. I, I did the work that I was here for and just focus instead on like, am I adding some bricks to this thing that we're, that we're all building? Mm. Yeah, there are so many things that occupy us because we feel like they're pointed in a direction or there's some endeavor right. that we're pursuing as part of them. When the, I think in some ways you could argue that the great insight of Buddhism is that the point is to do what we can to be fulfilled right here, right now as opposed to constantly deferring that that fulfillment or enjoyment or meaning and attaching it to some externalized purpose. And yeah. at the end of the day, we're carrying it with us. And that's where, you know, where most of the joy and where we place our attention is going to come from over the course of our life, if it's truly made meaningful in that way, just by engagement with our present experience. Right, right, right. There's an idea that you come across, I think most often in Zen specifically, that a framing of this that expresses the idea that our suffering comes above all from trying to get to the solution to life, right? Trying mm-hmm. to get mm-hmm. to the point where we have solved human existence, treated it like a problem to be solved, and then found the solution. The idea that the real problem is thinking that our problems ought to come to an end at some point. I always find that really powerful because it makes me, it returns my attention to the fact that no, this is dealing with the things I'm dealing with. This is this is being alive. It's not it's not some yeah. annoying uh, prelude to the bit where yeah. I don't have to deal with things. Yeah, I think actually when you say it like that, that's a really beautiful encapsulation of so much of what you're talking about in the book. Where we can, it's really easy to feel like we're constantly living in the prologue to right. the life that we're really supposed to be living down the line. Yeah. And that is that deferment you were talking about early on, that thing that keeps us at at arm's length from the reality that no man, this is it. You are you are here right, right now. This is the one you're right. doing. This is the one you're got. This is uh this is not the not the tutorial. We are in the main game right now. <laughs> and that kind of like very real, no, what do you want to do about this? Can be a source of real action. I really agree. I think that's a lovely way of putting it. And I think the sort of companion piece of that is that it isn't, doesn't need to be a reason or an exhortation to kind of freak out and feel like you've got to squeeze, stressfully squeeze value from every from every moment, because in a way that is just to commit the same mistake and to think that you can sort of, if you can't if you're not going to live forever, and if this is not a dress rehearsal, well, maybe you can still kind of feel like you did something godlike in a way by sort of living more extraordinarily than anyone else. Actually, it's, I think when you, and I struggle with this still myself, but I think when you really get into that groove, it's very relaxing because it is Mm, like, mm -hmm. this is it. It's not like, this is it go base jumping every weekend, right? It's like, <laughs> this is it. It's all it needs to be. It's all it, it's all it is. And this is, this is fine. Yeah. Yeah. That's been a real focus of practice for me recently. It's, it's funny when we had this, when we had this conversation on the schedule, because I went through this 
rather odd experience just a couple of weeks ago that was kind of like existential crisis vaguely related. So I thought that it was kind of pertinent timing with all of that. But just the the continuous engagement with being like, drinking the tea is it, reading the book is it, having right. the podcast interview is it. Now, obviously, that's a slightly unusual it for people, but nonetheless, you know, that's it. Whatever it is that you're doing is it in this moment. And that's really okay. There's an enoughness there. Right. And with perhaps exceptions, in general, the fulfillment of that moment comes from the degree to which you can adopt that stance, not from from the content of the experience, not from whether it's activity A or activity B. Yeah. And then just increasingly doing what we can to come to peace with that, coming to peace right. with like living a normal life. Yeah. Is I think in some ways one of the big codas to your book is that it's about, well, we're just living normal lives most of the time and it's really right. okay to live a normal life. Right. right. This is where, as a writer of this book, I begin to wonder whether I've sort of led myself and the reader on a on a sort of process of transformation that the really enlightened people never had to go through in the first place. You know, it's like, uh, <laughs> you're sort of like, you sometimes get a sense that like, if there's any wisdom encapsulated in this book, it's it, it's wisdom that comes from either myself or from the people I'm quoting and writing about going through a process of sort of having strange notions about what life should be and then being brought back down to earth from them. And maybe there are people among us who are just down to earth the whole time. I mean, that's uh, being down to earth the whole time is definitely an aspirational stance for me. But I, I think that we would all be shocked by how few people are that way. Um, you know, I, I think that like, there is something in all of this that makes it a little tough to talk about sometimes because sometimes you can get to a conclusion that when you get there, when you like say the thing that feels very meaningful to you, you feel like it was kind of obvious the whole time in its own little way. And you're like, why is this realization right. so important to me? But there's something, and as a very top-down, like cognitive, talky person, this has been a little tricky for me, but there's something about the feeling associated with these ideas, even if the words associated with them can be just like implicitly obvious sometimes. The the feeling right. tone when you really get it is not yeah. implicitly obvious, I don't think, at least to most people. Maybe there are some people who are way out at the tail end of the bell curve who just like get it. But I think that's that's uncommon. Yeah. I think that I think that's right. One way that I've thought about this sometimes, and people may not accept the underlying psychology here, but like in a sense, it's like in a sense, I feel like this book and this whole journey is kind of a left brain person's attempt to use left brain techniques to kind of get to a more right brain way of of being, because it's sort of like pursuing the left brain ideas to their logical conclusion to the point where they kind of shudder and collapse and then you're left with something <laughs> you're left with something more holistic than uh, than before i think there's something about this where the the shuddering and collapsing part of the whole enterprise is actually a big part of the value so i think you're totally right on oh yeah. totally yeah absolutely well i've totally loved having this conversation with you oliver it's been a real pleasure for me and and again just thank you for the book it really helped me personally i think it's just a wonderful piece of work and i know it'll benefit a lot of people Thank you so much. It's lovely to hear. And it's uh, it's been such an interesting adventure having it sort of go out into the world. Turns out there are plenty of people with as much, uh, as many problems as me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the common humanity of this whole thing is a great place to leave it. Is there anything else you would like people to know about as we come to the end here? 
I should mention that the book is around the time this goes out, I think, is just out in paperback in the mm -hmm. US and Canada. It's been out in paperback in the UK for a while. That's really all. I have an email newsletter that people can sign up for at my website, oliverberkman.com. Great. Again, Oliver, thanks so much for doing this today. Uh, thanks so much, Forrest. It's been a pleasure. I had a great time today talking with Oliver Berkman, the author of the new book, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. The core premise of the book comes from the obvious truth that our time here is finite, and so we need to make choices about how we're going to use it. And often the choice that people make is to try to get more efficient at doing things, better and better at being productive, so that we can clear the space for the things that truly matter to us. But that efficiency is actually just a trap. The better we get at doing things, the more things that we're given to do. The faster we answer our emails, the more emails come in. It's just a treadmill that we keep on running on day after day after day. And yes, we do need to be productive in life to some extent. We live in a capitalistic society. Most people have to make their money by going to some form of nine to five job. There are things that we have to accomplish. But the question really is, is what's our purpose in accomplishing them? And what's the feeling tone associated with accomplishing them along the way? And then maybe even more than that, have we shifted our worldview? Have we moved away from the belief that one day we truly will be able to get everything done? Because that is a delusional belief, but our pursuit of it can get us trapped in a variety of behaviors that aren't actually benefiting us in meaningful ways. And people stay on this productivity hamster wheel for a variety of different reasons, but some of the big ones are to avoid the natural existential fears that arise when we really contemplate the finite nature of life and the conclusions that that finite nature might have for our everyday living, just right here in the here and now. And there are a lot of different forms that this takes. One really common one is deferring choice, keeping our options open because we hope that something better will constantly be coming down the pipe to us. And the truth is that, yeah, all choices are inherently limiting. By choosing one thing, we remove other options. And there's a natural pain to that process. But so much of life is about perspective. And just as it's easy to have the fear of missing out, the pain of selecting one thing from the menu, which means you don't get to select the other things, we can also shift our view just a little bit and increasingly move into a stance inside of ourselves where there is such richness and enjoyment to the choices that we do make because we're not choosing other things. If we lived an infinite life, as Oliver talks about in the book, none of our choices would actually matter because we'd just get to do everything. But we don't get that choice. We have to choose. We are condemned to make choices. So what do you want them to be? And in the process of making those choices, we need to confront our limitations. The version that exists in your head of something is always going to be bigger and better and more perfect than whatever you're able to actually put down on paper, whether it's literally on paper in the form of writing a book like Oliver did, or it's more of a metaphorical paper of whatever you're trying to create. Either way, we are confronted with our limitations. And there was a question at the end of the book, one of the five questions that Oliver wrote about. I'm just paraphrasing it here because I'm doing it from memory. But it's something about coming to terms with being the person that you are, that you actually are right now, rather than this idealized version of the self that exists in the head or this other kind of fantasy version of who you are. 
I grabbed the book because I like the way that he put it so much. It's, in what ways have you yet to accept the fact that you are who you are, not the person you think you ought to be? And in that ought to be, there is a implicit question. What are the values that matter to you? Not to our social constructs, not to other people, not to our family systems, not to whatever. What are the values that really matter to you? This is your life. Oliver, uh, throughout the conversation, said things like, I'm not trying to tell you how to live your life. I'm just trying to open a perspective that is available to all of us in almost all lives. Even if we don't have a lot of freedom or utility in how we spend our time, we can have a lot of freedom inside of our own minds in how we hold how we spend our time, in the choices that we make outside of our work life, maybe in how we frame our efforts and pursuits in this one life that we get. And in addition to all of the existential considerations here, there is quite a bit of practical advice in the book as well. There were three points in the section on procrastination that really stood out to me personally. And the three suggestions that Oliver gave were pay yourself first, and this is paying yourself with your time first, the idea of focusing on what truly matters to you as much as you can, and getting away from this notion that one day you will be able to clear the field enough to finally do the work that matters. The field will never get clear. That's just the reality. There will always be something else that demands your attention. So the question is, how do we shift time toward the things that really matter rather than trying to clear the space for them to just emerge into our lives? The second suggestion, limit your work in progress. And work in progress was his way of talking about all of the different tasks that we're doing at any given time. Because when any act of creation gets to the actually important part, it gets hard. And if we have a thousand balls in the air at any given time, it's really easy to shift our attention away from the ones that are challenging to the ones that are relatively easy for us. And so one way to avoid this is simply by limiting the amount of balls we have in the air at any given time, if we're able to do so. And yes, this can mean saying no to things you like or activities you like or people you like. And this gets to the third point that Oliver made, which is resist the allure of middling priorities. And this gets to this apocryphal story that I think is attributed to Warren Buffett or maybe Einstein or who knows, some smart person, where you create a list of the 25 most important things in your life and you have to rank order them, one to 25. And then you only focus on the first five. And it's not that you spend like a little time on seven to 12. It's that you try to avoid these things almost at all costs because they're the things that are interesting enough to have a real allure to you, but not so interesting that they can actually be a source of deep meaning and fulfillment and purpose in the course of your life. And that might feel a bit extreme to you. Maybe five feels like way too few. Maybe listing 25 feels like listing way too many. Feel free to adapt this idea however uh, is appropriate for your life, which was a running theme throughout the conversation. The point here is not what is the right way to do it, because there is no right way to do it. The point is what works for you. And at the end here, just to add a little bit of personal reflection, these topics have been deeply meaningful to me throughout my life and really coming to terms with the with the simple truth that our time is finite, that we're all going to die, that this is not a prologue. This is the whole game. And whatever it is that you're doing right now in this moment, 
is the whole thing. Listening to this podcast, drinking your tea. When you're scrolling on your phone, that's it. That's what you're doing. You're not killing time in pursuit of something else. That is the thing. And then we get to make choices as we come closer and closer into a into an acceptance and full realization of that truth. Our choices start to matter more, and we become a lot more deliberate about them. And that's what I think this is all really about at bottom, getting more deliberate about the choices that we make, because we're going to get to the end either way. You're going to get to the end whether or not you grapple with the reality that life is short and this is the one that you get. You're going to get there. So the question is really, how do you want it to be? How do you want it to be along the way? And how do you want it to be toward the end of your life where you're looking back over it and asking yourself these questions about whether or not you did the things that felt meaningful for you? And sometimes that can pull people into either a lot of existential dread or uh, kind of the the counter to that, this sort of urgent, insistent do, 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 because I'm trying to cram as much as possible into this one life that I have. But most of the time, for most people, if they're engaged with these ideas, they're able to move through that stage and get to a place where even the simple things become so much richer and so much more full of, words kind of fail here, a sense of realness, a sense of meaning maybe, a sort of poignancy, I think is the word that Oliver used. Even those things can become the purpose itself. And that's a really wonderful place to be, and it's a place that I'm definitely trying to live more into in my own very imperfect way. So I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I had a wonderful time talking with Oliver. I hope it really came through how much I appreciate his work, how much I appreciate his book. I really think it's fantastic. I couldn't recommend it more highly. If you've been enjoying the podcast for a while, it would be great if you could take a moment to subscribe to it wherever you're listening to it now on. And hey, maybe even leave a rating or a positive review. Leave a comment if you're watching on YouTube. Any questions you have about it, anything you wish I had asked Oliver or any clarifications you want about the content of today's episode, we got a little out there with it. So totally understand if you have a few more questions than normal. If you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple of dollars a month, you can support the show and you'll receive a bunch of bonuses in return. Until next time, thanks for listening and I'll talk to you soon.